This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Caroline Levine, a literary scholar who studies the links between art and society. This episode is about predictability in art and life. Do you want to live a predictable life? Can great art ever be predictable? Most people would probably say no to both. But Caroline Levine thinks predictability is more valuable than we usually recognize. Predictability is like putting on your own oxygen mask before helping others. We need to cover the essentials, like shelter and a stable work schedule, in order to achieve our grander ambitions. But predictability isn't just useful in our personal lives. Whether it's reliable access to childcare or a unifying protest chant, predictability can also help us in collectively creating social change. Caroline Levine, welcome. It's nice to be here. So the topic that we're going to talk about today is valuing predictability and specifically valuing predictability both in life and in art. So um, I guess if we can just start with predictability in life, um, you know, the, just the word predictability already has like a lot of negative associations. I think of like boring, repetitious, uninteresting, mechanical, it lacks variety. So yeah, predictability, like I think if you if you ask people, do they want to live a predictable life? Most people would probably say no. So why do you think that predictability is something we should value? Well, it's certainly something that I think lots of us already do value, but we don't talk about how we value it. So, you know, especially in the arts and among, you know, intellectuals and people who fancy themselves to be um, part of a of an interesting world. The idea is that there'd be innovation, there'd be surprise, there'd be things that jolt you out of routines, that all of that would be good. Um, but I think what's really clear right now in the moment of climate oncoming climate change is that we're seeing how unpredictability could be much worse for us than predictability. So we're taking for granted things like, do we know where our next meal is going to come from? Do we know where there's safe shelter? All of those things are these kind of predictable backdrops for the exciting other things that we do. Um, So I think, I think predictability, I think people who suffer from unpredictability uh, radical unpredictability, like hunger um, and like homelessness, know that predictability is a good thing. Right. I mean, it was, I can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, but there was a tropical storm um, here in New York City. And um, yeah, it just sort of, it like totally disrupted my day. Like I was fine. I'm not complaining. But, you know, it was like something that I was normally depending on to be predictable, the weather suddenly it just completely changed. And I think, you know, you mentioning like climate change, I guess that's one thing that we want the climate to be predictable. We don't want it to be unpredictable. Yes. And so that makes me think of another another part of life besides climate that we also want to be predictable, I think, which is our work routine. So people who are in the gig economy and who are, are piecing together little bits of labor here and there are often working 
very unpredictable hours and that's terrible on multiple grounds sleep right if you're if you're working a night shift tomorrow and then a day shift the next day awful for your body but then also things like childcare and family time and all of that is completely disrupted so having some mm. predictability in work and having some predictability in terms of you know these basic kind of fundamental things in life like food and sleep i think you know we want to pay attention to that because they're all at risk they're under threat right now their predictability yeah yeah so it sounds like there's like specific kind of fundamental things that we really do want to be predictable so so work sleep where we live the weather the climate i mean one thing that i'm i'm getting out of these examples you've already given is like actually um it takes an enormous amount of privilege to assume that predictability is always a bad thing right like you know, as you were talking about, like the example of homelessness, um, or people really affected by climate change right now, um, or people who have like childcare duties, um, like domestic responsibilities, like for those people know the value of predictability, or they're just more aware of it. Right. It's, it's, I think you said it really well. It's just easy to take it for granted and then assume that it's not important because it's a backdrop, but it allows you to do all these other things. And so having that privilege is, is just invisible to us. But how do we make it more visible? Or how, for those who have that kind of privilege, do we make it more visible? Um, and then for those who don't have that privilege, how do we actually work together to provide more predictability, that that's actually a value. It's kind of connected to justice in a really fundamental way. If we think about like food security, knowing where your next meal is going to come from mm. um, or labor protection so that you, you know, know when you're going to be working for the week. Like those things are, are, are questions of justice. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of interesting or like surprising to me because the idea that something like a daily routine, um, could connect to something yeah like ju justice or sort of like political dimension to this right like those things can seem very far apart totally i mean this is how i got interested in this project in the first place was like politics for so many activists and radicals and i consider myself an activist a climate activist and and activist in other ways is about rupture and about like breaking down the institutions and smashing norms and realizing that that was not actually the day-to-day -day reality that I needed in order to do my work. Like even as an activist, I have to have a certain number of things in place. You know, I have to have somebody to look after my kids so I could go to a protest. Like those things are all the infrastructure of life. And so the the distinction between like what we think of as valuable politics and what I think actually has to happen in politics, that was something that really got me interested in this to begin with. So you're wanting us to think about kind of different timescales for like politics or justice that actually like we think of it in the way that I think you were kind of evoking a few minutes ago as like something sudden, something like revolutionary, something that's about breaking something. Um, overthrowing something and that actually that's not all there is yeah no exactly that's exactly what i'm trying to think about um there's a tradition that i'm drawn to um which is associated with people like raymond williams and the birmingham school of cultural studies um from like the 70s and 1970s and 80s uh about revolutions happening over very long spans of time and so one of the mistakes i think we make 
when we think about radical politics as being an explosive shattering is that actually no revolution ever took place like that. Um, they all require a lot of, you know, people changing over time, you know, changing cultures and habits of mind and that kind of stuff is, is a long and slow process. And so that seems kind of important to thinking about what political activism, the timescales of political activism are. Yeah. So to kind of think about like the political issues on a different level, if you ruled the world, <laughs> what things would you want to make more predictable? Uh, well, so um, I realized the other day that since I was, I think, an early teenager, and I asked my dad, why doesn't everybody have enough to eat? And I still am asking that question. I still don't understand why not everybody has enough to eat. And a few years ago, I gave a talk where I, I kind of, or I was talking to other professors and I was saying something about how, you know, nobody would say that it's good for people to starve. And this person said to me, somebody in the group said to me, actually, that's not true. There are people who think that starvation is important for an economy to work, right? You have to have the threat of starvation for people oh, wow. to work. And I was like, okay, now I really see that this isn't just a kind of why can't we get it together for everybody to eat, but like, that's really fundamental. And so mm -hmm. for me, just, just like all the other political issues are interesting and important to me, but that one is so basic that I can't believe that we don't organize wow. ourselves around it. So. That's, I'm shocked. And also it makes sense. Like the idea, so the the reasoning there would be like, not having predictable access to food motivates people to do certain kinds of work and therefore it's important for the economy because otherwise they wouldn't do those kinds of work. Exactly. Right? Yeah, wow. exactly. It's so dark. It's so awful, right? But it is yeah. what I think a lot of um, sort of uh, pro-capitalists really do believe, right? That you have to have enough of a threat of, mm. of starvation, of of uh, homelessness that people people are willing to do the work that they wouldn't do otherwise, um, and so yeah, and I think you you'll know coming from Britain that that's not the only way to think about <laughs> a social hall. One could have a safety net, and it could actually work, um, and that yeah. would be a different a different way of thinking about our collective life together. Yeah, although yeah, that has its own issues in yes. the UK with people trying to dismantle it anyway. Um, of course, yes, I, sadly so. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I feel pretty convinced by what you've been saying about like predictability being a good thing in life, um, at least like certain kinds of predictability that certain things should be predictable. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering how this also applies to art because art you know, isn't predictable art just boring? Don't we want art to be precisely the opposite of these things we've, we've been talking about? Um, certainly, if you ask anybody in the arts, right? I mean, pretty much anybody. I shouldn't generalize about everybody, but pretty much anybody in the arts would say the whole point of art is to be not predictable. The whole point is to surprise you, to open your horizons, to make you think a new thought. Good art is the art that changes the conventions. And so I do think some disruptions are really valuable, but I do also want to think about the other side of this, which is, um, so I'm going to ask you if you can think of an example of a, of a movie or a TV show or a book that you go back to at times of stress or anxiety and find mm. comforting. Mm. Um, 
well, I'll say this because I kind of don't endorse it as something to watch, but like Friends, I go back to again and again. And it used to be, I mean, talking about like predictability and routine, it used to be on TV in the UK on one of the national channels every day of the week. So I would come home from school, it would reliably be on TV. And so I watched most of those episodes many times as I was growing up. And so for me, it's incredibly comforting, even though now when I watch it, there's a lot of things that I'm like, oh, like that seems so dated. And also just like, they seem so horrible. They seem so homophobic. They seem so, you know, anyway, there's all kinds of problems with friends, but that is for me, that show. And it still gives you that comfort, even when you feel yeah. critical of it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I love that example. I also, when I was um, an assistant professor and I was trying to finish my book, it came on at 11 p.m. Friends came on at 11 p.m. And that would end my day of writing would be an episode of Friends from 11 to 1130 at night. So I have the same kind of comfort that you do. Yeah. Like, so you mentioned like Friends was something you watched during um, when you were writing and it was kind of reward at the end of the day um what's the thing now that you kind of go to for comfort for predictability that you kind of uh returning to again and again well i i am um uh, really a fan of detective fiction and i always have been mm. especially you know the the detective who is like um not playing by the rules exactly, but really cares about justice, right? That's a kind of stock character and eventually finds the truth. And it's really satisfying. So then detective fiction can be quite comforting for you. Yes, it sounds yes. Like. Yeah. yes. A lot of people have comfort songs too, right? Like uh, especially songs with that you might listen to over and over, but that also themselves are repetitive and have refrains and you can come back to them. And so that might be another source of that kind of comfort and pleasure. So yeah, is there a, a song that you listen to predictably? Um, I think I am less of a of a musical person than I kind of wish I was. But one of the things that I that I recognize that I that I find really interesting is that a lot of um, political movements have had songs attached to them, and those are sometimes like chants. And that there's a moment in a gathering when people sing together that is a moment of incredible collective purpose and, and joy often. And so um, Martin Luther King used to end his um, weekly meetings during the Birmingham bus boycott with a song. Um, and it would be a hymn and it would be something that everybody already knew and then they would sing it together. Um, but uh, so it's a, it's a way of having predictability. Like you don't want to, play something people have never heard before. That doesn't ha help everybody to join in and be part of something. So it's usually memorable, predictable, repetitive, a song that people can can easily pick up on and participate in that has been really important to political movements. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think like, so we're recording this um, summer 2020 and there's been these Black Lives Matter protests and I've been to some of them. And so people there, have the chant which just goes black lives matter and like once you've heard it once you can sing along i wouldn't even have thought to call it a song but it has that kind of um yeah like shared experience right and and it's so important like we think about art as having to be complex right and interesting or at least that's what i was raised with was this idea that art that's really simple is not really art but that's an example of 
of a cultural object with a with a melody with a with a with a rhythm that you wouldn't want to be complicated right they would, would completely defeat the purpose if it was complicated so it's the very predictability and the simplicity of it is what makes it really powerful mm, yeah so there's actually like a, a political power to predictable art yes yes i love that, I love that too <laughs> Caroline Levine, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one in which Caroline discusses how the French Revolution couldn't change things overnight, and another in which she explains why a predictable happy ending to a novel can be a good thing. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe, with editorial assistance from me, Colby King, and from me, Eleanor Roth-Hessen. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.